be led by the Holy Ghost. Romans chapter 8 and Proverbs chapter 20. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That tells us that every child of God, every born-again believer, has a right, and I always add, I believe, a responsibility, to be led by the Holy Ghost. Verse 16 tells you how he's going to lead you. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Now, in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27, it says, The Spirit of man, the Spirit of man. We found from the Scripture that man is a three-part being. He is a spirit. He's made in the image of God, and the Bible says God is a spirit. So by definition, man would have to be a spirit being if he's in God's image. Man is a spirit. He has or possesses a soul that's made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions, and he lives in a body. We wouldn't say that the inward man or the the spirit of man is the same as the body, would we? We recognize that those are distinct and different. Well, in the same way, it would be just as improper or unscriptural to say the spirit and the soul are the same. So Proverbs twenty twenty seven <clears throat> tells us that the spirit of man, not the soul of man, and not the body of man, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. I like a modern-day paraphrase of that verse. It says it this way, the spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord because the whole purpose of the spirit of man being the candle of the Lord is for us to be led by the Holy Spirit. The spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, as we said, we found that the the, uh, scripture is pretty specific, very specific, about identifying the three-part nature of man. He is a spirit. He has or possesses a soul. He lives in a body. Well, we know the body has a voice. We call that voice feelings. We know that the mind or the soul has a voice. We call that voice reason. Well, wouldn't it be strange for God to make us three-part being, the eternal part, the important part of man being the spirit? Wouldn't it be unusual for God to give the outward man, the flesh a voice, and to give the soul a voice, but not give the spirit a voice? In fact, we found that Proverbs chapter 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, talking about the spirit of man. With all of your heart and not and lean not to your understanding or your soul. Well, if the body has a voice and this, the soul has a voice, and we're not supposed to lean to our understanding or lean upon the soul, the voice of our soul, reason in other words, then we need to know what the voice of the spirit is. Well, the spirit of man does have a voice. Turn back with me to First Kings chapter nineteen. First Kings chapter 19, there's an Old Testament example that has a New Testament parallel or fulfillment that I believe is really important for us to see. Now, in the context of these scriptures is in the previous chapter, chapter 18 of First Kings, Elijah, who's the prophet of God at the time, challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest on Mount Carmel. He says, you offer your offerings and prayers to your God. I'll offer mine to the, the God, the God of Israel. The one that answers by fire, let him be God. Well, they have this contest. And the prophets of Baal, that says there's 450 of them. They do all kinds of weird stuff. They're jumping up and down, cutting themselves with stones, acting like crazy people. They remind me of modern-day protesters. But at any rate, after they do everything they do, Elijah starts mocking them. He said, well, maybe your God's in a place that he can't hear. Literally from the, in the original Hebrew, it says, maybe your God's in the bathroom and he can't hear you. Or maybe he's asleep. Finally, he has enough and says, all right, you've had your chance. And then he rebuilds the altar, pours water on it. It's a time of drought, so water's really important, very precious commodity. He pours water on the, the altar and soaks the sacrifice. He digs, has the, the people help him to dig a trench around the water and fills up the trench with, uh, a trench around the altar and fills up that trench with water. And then finally just says a real simple prayer and the fire falls from heaven and consumes the, the sacrifice. 
dries up all the water, vaporizes the water, melts the altar and the stones and everything else around it. And everybody knows that God is the, the God of Israel is the real God. Now, the Bible tells us that Elijah, on that very same day, killed those 450 prophets. He didn't have them killed. The Bible says he did it, killed them with a sword. Now, Jezebel, who's the wicked, uh, the queen, her husband is Ahab, the king. She hears about this, and she was using those prophets of Baal to manipulate the people to justify whatever she wanted to do and however she wanted to do it. And when she hears that Elijah has killed these people, she threatens to kill him. She said, this time tomorrow, he'll be dead just like they are. So Elijah starts running for the hills. It says he goes about a day's journey, sits down, starts complaining to God and says, Lord, just let me die. Things are so bad. Just let me die. Well, he didn't want to die any more than you do when you've complained to God like that. If he really wanted to die, he could have stayed where he was and Jezebel would have taken care of that. But anyway, it says that he falls asleep and an angel kicks him in the side, wakes him up, says, get up, you need strength, eat this food. He's baked him a cake of some type and Elijah eats it. Then he goes back to sleep. The angel kicks him, hours later, the angel kicks him in the side again, tells him he needs to eat more for the strength of his journey. Provides another cake for him, I guess. And he eats this thing and he goes in the strength of this angel food for 40 days. Now, we'll pick up the story in chapter 19. He goes up into the mountain. uh, Under Mount Horeb. Let's start in verse 9. And he came there unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, folks, I've I've got uh, a little bit of a problem with this story. Because less than, what, would it be 42 days ago from this point in time? He's had one of the greatest miracles in the sight of all the people that's recorded in history. Fire falls from heaven. Now, sure, I'm sure, I'm certain that it was taxing and tiring for him to swing the sword enough to kill 450 people. But then within two days, an angel is waking him up and doing this baking for him, fixing him food. How big a problem have you got if that's what's going on in your life? But that's not the way he looks at it. He looks at it as things being hopeless. I don't think I'd think of it in those terms. I certainly don't sitting from the seat that I'm in now. Folks, you need to understand something. It's not always how things really are. It's how we see them. That determines what actions we take. So what happens? He goes up into the mountain and the word of the Lord comes to him. Clearly God's speaking to him. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, what are you doing here? And he answers, woe is me. I'm the only one left. Verse 11. And he said, God said to him, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent. That means broke. The mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now, folks, I've been in tornadoes before, but I've never seen rocks break. What kind of wind causes rocks to break? We're talking about a serious circumstance. You get that, don't you? The wind broke the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. Now, certainly the Lord caused the wind. What does it mean the Lord was not in the wind? It means there was no direction for Elijah in the circumstance, no matter how unusual or spectacular the circumstance was. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, not circumstances. Then it goes further, and it says, And after the wind there was an earthquake, 
but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Well, he certainly caused the earthquake. He's trying to prove a point to Elijah. But it means there is no leading of God in, in the circumstance or the physical situation that we know of as the earthquake. Now, how many times do you know of or have you heard where people, Christians, well-meaning perhaps, a lot of times preachers, a lot of times famous preachers, have looked at circumstances and said, this is what God is telling the world. There's a hurricane or an earthquake or something like that. And somebody says, here's the judgment of God. Folks, I want you to see something. We've got an example in Scripture that God doesn't lead and he doesn't speak through circumstances. It may have been a tragedy. And the people upon whom that tragedy came may have deserved it. But God's not trying to talk to people through circumstances. Natural disasters or otherwise. Then it says in verse 12, and after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Well, he caused the fire. He's trying to prove a point to Elijah, but there's no direction in the fire, the circumstance. And after the fire was a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering end of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, what doest thou here, Elijah? Now, here's what I want you to see. Elijah took action. He recognized that there was direction when he heard the still small voice. Not the wind that broke the rocks or the mountains. Not the earthquake. Not the fire. He recognized the direction of God in this thing called the still small voice. Now, I want to bring something else to your attention That still small voice was different than the word of the Lord that came to him in verse 9 and asked him the question, what are you doing here? See, when the Lord asked him in verse 9, and many times the Old Testament prophets would say something to the effect, the word of the Lord came to me as saying. Well, how did that work? How did the word of the Lord come to Old Testament prophets who weren't born again, whose spirits weren't made new, in whom the Holy Ghost could not live. You remember the story of Moses when he asked to see the glory of God in in Exodus chapter 33. God said, you can't see my face and live. Well, at that point in time, Moses had been in the mountain of God for 40 days to receive the old, uh, the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. He had been so affected by that that he came down from the mountain and his face shined so much so It had such an effect on his physical body that the people were afraid of him. They asked him to put a bag on his head. So you can't say that the power of God and the presence of God hadn't affected him in a great way. But that affectation or the degree that he had been affected by it was not enough to be able to look on the face of God and not die because he hadn't been made a new creature. We've been studying the book of Revelation or began studying the book of Revelation several weeks ago. And the first thing that it tells us about John being caught up into heaven is he sees God in the throne that he's sitting on. Well, how could John look on his face and Moses couldn't? Because John's been made a new creature. He's been washed in the blood of Jesus. So how does the word of the Lord come to the Old Testament prophet? When the word of the Lord or the spirit of God couldn't live on the inside of him. He's hearing not an audible voice, but something that perhaps he perceives to be an audible voice. If it was an audible voice, everybody would hear it, and there'd be no need for the prophet to tell people what God said. So it's not an audible voice. But it comes to him as if it is an audible voice. He hears something in the spirit that sounds as real as an audible voice, but notice that God is not giving him direction through the audible or the, the seeming, the apparent audible voice, the, the word of the Lord coming to the prophet. He gets direction from God by the still small voice. Now, it doesn't tell us what the still small voice said. It doesn't tell us what direction was given 
the direction is given past that point is when the, words, the, uh, the Lord starts speaking to him and tells him what to do after he goes down from the mountain. So we don't know what the still small voice was all about in substance. So why does the Holy Ghost give us a record of this account and make sure that we know that God spoke to him in a still small voice or gave direction to him in a still small voice? Because it corresponds to the voice of your spirit. It's not the word of the Lord. It's the voice of your own spirit. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 23. I don't turn to Acts chapter 23 yet. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Here's what God says that he's going to do in the new birth. He gives Ezekiel information about what happens and what takes place when we ask Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. We'll start reading in verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. The Bible talks about the washing of the water by the word. It says we're born again by the incorruptible seed of the word of God. That's what this washing with clean water is or sprinkled with clean water. It's talking about the word that comes that provides faith to be saved. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Notice will I cleanse you. Notice the word of God does that. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit, he defines the, the, what the word heart means here. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart, the spiritually dead heart or spirit out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart or a spirit of flesh, a spirit that's tender to God, in other words. And I'll put my spirit within you. I'll put my spirit within you. Now, who's the you he's talking about here? Who's the you he's talking about? Let's start again in verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. What part of you is affected by the word of God at the new birth? It's your spirit, isn't it? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, old things pass away and all things become new. Spiritual things become new. The old things of the spirit, the old dead spirit passes away. With all of its traits and characteristics. A new heart will I also give you. A new spirit will I give you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the recreation of the human spirit. So the you has got to be the spirit of man. Or the spirit man. We can use that term. A new heart will I put within you. And a new spirit. Or a heart, new heart I'll give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's talking about a replacement of spirit. He doesn't leave the old spirit. He takes the old spirit away and replaces it. That's why it's a new birth. Not a a refurbishing or a restoration work. He doesn't clean you up. He makes you new. So the you he's talking about in every instance is the spirit man. The real you. The eternal part of man, the part that lives on after the body dies. Now, with that in mind, notice he says, and I'll put my spirit within you. Who's the you mean here? It's got to be the spirit. I'll put my spirit within your spirit, in other words, and cause you from your spirit to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. I'm, I trust that you're aware of verses of Scripture like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, which says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Where does the Spirit of God dwell? He dwells in your spirit. He doesn't dwell along with you or along with your spirit in your body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost because your spirit is the place where the Holy Spirit lives and your body is the temple of your own spirit. The point I'm trying to make is very simply this, folks. How do you tell the difference between your spirit and the spirit of God when he lives in your spirit? Now, 
Now turn with me over to Acts 23. See, so many times people will say things like, well, Pastor Mike, how do I know if this is me or if it's God? We've got to define what we mean when we use terms like that in order to be able to identify who's who. If, for example, you mean, how do I know if this is my flesh or the leading of the Spirit of God? That's easy. It's easy for you to identify identify what your flesh wants to do. See, if the Lord spoke to me and told me to go to Hawaii, that's going to be hard for me to accept. Because my flesh already wants to go. But if the Lord tells me to go to some place that my flesh doesn't want to go, if he tells me to go to Needless, California, I know that's not me. Now, you may laugh, but that's one of the first steps I take when I'm ascertaining the direction of God. I identify first and foremost, what does my flesh want to do? Notice what Paul said in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1. He's standing before the high priest when he goes to Jerusalem. And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Notice chapter 24 verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Notice what Paul's saying. Paul says, I always obey my conscience. I always obey my conscience. Now, why would Paul put such a great priority on his conscience? Is your conscience a part of your flesh? No, your conscience isn't feelings. Is a conscience part of the mind? No, you can't reason conscience into people. So then what does the conscience have to be a part of? Your conscience is the voice of your spirit. Feelings is the voice of the body. Reason is the voice of the mind. And conscience is the voice of the spirit. Now back to where we started over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. It says, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. First thing the Holy Ghost will bear witness with you concerning, the first thing that your conscience will lead you toward is your relationship with God your Father. Now compare that with 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14 where John says, by the Holy Ghost, we know, not we think so, not we hope so, we know that we pass from death to life He's talking about spiritual death into eternal life. How do we know? Because we love the brethren. So if the Holy Ghost is going to bear witness with your spirit, first and foremost, that you are children of God, and the way that we know that we're children of God is because of the love of God that's been shed abroad in our heart toward other believers, Then first and foremost, the Holy Spirit, or I'm sorry, not the Holy Spirit, I've misspoke. First and foremost, the voice of your own spirit, which is your conscience, is going to lead you toward love. Now, as I've been studying these things over the last almost 40 years, there have been things that the Lord has shown me along the way that he's spoken to me that I lost track of. For example, those of you that have been here for any period of time know my story. I got saved just a few days before my seventh birthday. I've only spent about seven days, give or take a couple of days maybe, not knowing God. There's been only about seven, maybe ten at the most days of my life that I've experienced spiritual death. I was very conscious of it because the Lord spoke to my heart. I knew I had a witness on the inside that I needed to make Jesus the Lord of my life. We were going to a church that would give altar calls and 
at the time that he's witnessed to my heart, it was during one of those altar calls and I didn't want to move. And so I didn't give ear to it. And the light went out on the inside of me when I didn't. And it scared me. Young kid, I didn't know what was going on. So as a matter of a few days, a week, whatever it was, however many days it was, I finally talked to my mom about it and she knelt down with me in her her bedroom and she led me in a prayer of salvation and the light came back on. Well, I can remember as a child that there were things with the... the, uh, Well, let me say it this way. Let me set it up by saying it this way. I've always been aware of, of a presence within me and I knew it was Jesus and there would be things that Jesus would talk to me about and when I say that I don't mean necessarily in words but there'd be things that as a child I would know there'd be direction that he'd give me now as a seven, eight, nine year old kid you can well understand that there's no need for him to tell me where to look for a job or where to move or direction like that But I remember very specifically him giving me direction, having an inward witness, an inward knowing, which I now realize is the voice of my own spirit about being kind to other people and walking in love. One of the earliest examples of this, I remember I was going to a uh, private school in someone's home, private first grade. And uh, there was a table set up in one of the, uh, not the main room, but one of the side rooms where everybody would bring their sack lunch, you know, what mom made for you at home. Everybody would put their names on the sacks and line them up in a row on the table. Well, some kid was stealing lunches. And they, it happened over a period of time, so they figured out who it was. And somehow or another, he always took a took a liking to my lunch. So I'd get at lunchtime. I'd get into the bag, and there'd be half the stuff gone, and always the good stuff, you know. And so, the teacher came to me one day, told my mom ahead of time what was going on, what what they were going to do. So the teacher came to me one day and said, "Mike, so and so, Johnny is." the one that's taking stuff out of people's lunches. And so we're going to teach Johnny that there's a consequence for his action. So what we want you to do is we want you to take something out of Johnny's lunch. Now, to this day, I can't figure out how that taught Johnny anything. But I remember at the time, I felt so grieved on the inside. I argued with him. I said, no, that's not, we don't need to do that. It doesn't matter. He can have what he wants to out of my lunch. Now, I had no idea that the Bible says if somebody takes your coat, give them your cloak too. But that was the law of God that was written on my heart. They made me take something out of his lunch. And I remember to this moment how grieved I felt on the inside that I was the one doing the stealing. Now, don't be concerned. It didn't affect, affect, affect me. I've overcome it. <laughs> but looking back at that, I've, I've meditated on it and I've talked to the Lord about it. And I realized that that was the earliest example that I have recollection of where my conscience was telling me the right thing versus the wrong thing. Now, there was another time I was in the third grade. And we were having our class Christmas party. And there was an odd number of people in the class. And so it just so happened, I don't know how they were giving out the presents and drawing names and numbers or whatever it was, but one of the kids got his own gift. And so the teacher comes to me. I don't know why I'm always the guinea pig. But the teacher comes to me and tells me what happened and asks if I'd trade presents with Jimmy. Well, the present that Jimmy's mom gave Jimmy to bring to the class was a toothbrush and a small tube of toothpaste. 
Now, I don't remember what I had, but I remember I wanted to keep it. But something on the inside of me said, it's the right thing to do. So I traded gifts, traded Christmas gifts with Jimmy. Jimmy turned out to be one of my best friends all through high school. See, we take things like that and we think there's nothing to them, but those were the first leadings of the Holy Ghost that I remember. I think a lot of times we miss it on other things because we don't recognize when God was leading us in small things. Everybody wants to be led of God into big stuff. But you're not going to hear him on the big stuff unless you hear him on the little stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't always just something that put me at a disadvantage. When I was in the fifth grade, there was a bully in class. His name was Gentry Sutton. I hope Gentry hears this. I haven't seen him in 30 years, longer than that, I guess. Anyway, this kid, I want to be kind here, he was big. You know what I mean by big, don't you? Well, I was always the littlest kid in class. I was, they started me in school a year ahead and all this kind of stuff. And my dad used to make fun of me. I was the skinniest kid that you ever saw. If my family had been smart, they could have sold me to the circus and made a lot of money. (laughs) My dad used to tell me, son, I believe you could step into a Coke bottle. He wasn't far wrong. And so I was easy prey for Gentry Sutton. And so this is something that he got used to knocking me around, and all he had to do is just bump his hip into me, and I'm flying into the next room, you know. I mean, this kid was big. But one day... We're walking to class. I'm walking with the rest of the group. And Gentry Sutton comes up behind me and puts his arm around my neck, squeezes, grabs me around the neck like he's going to choke me. And I didn't think about it. I didn't didn't stop. I didn't pray. I didn't do anything. The next thing I knew, I knew what to do. I grabbed his arm, flipped him over over the forward, over my back, going forward. He landed flat on his back, second story of the school annex. The whole building shook. I mean, teachers came out of classrooms to see what the big noise was. Well, everybody that was around that saw what happened thought I was Bruce Lee. (laughs) And I remember I got by myself a little bit later, and I got by myself, and I knew that that wasn't anything that I had done on my own. This wasn't anything that I'd ever thought about doing. Nothing I'd ever practiced. And so I talked to that inside voice. I talked to Jesus who lived on the inside of me. And I said, Lord, that was you. And he said, don't worry. I'll protect you. Those were the earliest recollections I have of my conscience the voice of my spirit leading and guiding me in some respect. Now I want you to turn with me to a couple other scriptures. I want you to look with me over to um, well wait a minute. Do I want to take time to do this? No I don't. I don't want to look there. Once to the Romans, once to Timothy and once to the Hebrews. Paul, on these three occasions, made a statement. He said, follow after peace. To the Romans, he said, follow after the things that make for peace. To Timothy, he said, follow after righteousness and peace and some other things. But to the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, he said, follow after peace and holiness, without which no man can see the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. Aren't we supposed to follow the Holy Ghost? Why then does Paul make a statement? And he must be specific about the statement he's making. He says it three times. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Why does he speak specifically about following after peace? Because the quickest way to lose your peace is to violate your conscience. See, as a young child, I was aware of that voice on the inside. But as I got a little bit older, 
got a little bit more schooling, a little, little bit more education of the mind at the expense of my spirit, I lost some of those things. And then when I got to be a teenager and up into college age, I did a lot of things trying to be popular with other people. I did a lot of things that violated my conscience. I lost my peace. See, the only way you can follow after peace is if you do what Paul said he did and obey his conscience. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Your conscience will always leads you in the right direction because your conscience is the voice of your spirit. Now back to a question that I asked earlier. What's the difference in the voice of your own spirit and the leading of the Holy Ghost? For the child of God, none. The conscience is always a safe guide for someone who's saved. And it's never our conscience that leads us astray. It's the reason. It's our reasoning or our understanding that we tell ourselves is the leading of the Holy Ghost because that's what we want to do anyway. Paul said, I always exercise myself to have a good conscience before God and man. He's saying, I don't violate my spirit. I believe one of the reasons that Paul experienced such a consistent success and accuracy in being led by the Holy Ghost, even when other people were trying to talk him out of what he knew he was supposed to do because he kept his conscience clean. Now, these are things that will cause you to know things that your mind cannot understand. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep hear and know my voice. And a stranger they will not follow because they know not the voice of strangers. What do you think he's talking about when he uses the word know? He's got to be talking the same thing that John spoke of we know that we pass from death to life because we love the brother he's got to be talking about the inward witness he's talking about the inward knowing there are things that well let me let me give you a statement let me make a statement that brother Hagen used to say all the time he said the person that locks away his spirit becomes easy prey for selfish and designing people. But the one who puts spiritual development first is the one who climbs to the top. Because your heart knows things, your spirit knows things, the real you knows things that your head can't figure out. There are... um, There have been a number of times... Well, let me, let me give you one example. We had a guy working with us uh, many years ago that uh, he was a young guy, good heart, good guy, had a lot of natural skills and natural ability. But he had a little bit of skewed idea about what ministry was supposed to be. And so there were some things that he began to do. I don't think he was trying to hurt anybody, but he, he wound up hurting some people in our church. And it wasn't, a, wasn't a, a serious thing where he ran anybody off or anything like that. But it was something that, um, well, it just needed to be addressed. I was, was then and have always really been, I guess, if I'm being honest about it, I've always been slow to confront people when I know it's going to be an unpleasant situation. Now, That surprises some people because they think that as blunt and as direct as I am in the way that I talk about certain things during church while I'm ministering, they think I'm looking for confrontation. And I really don't enjoy it. I'm equipped for it. I realize that God has given me something to be able to handle difficult situations. But I don't seek them out. And so if I'm facing something that I know is going to be difficult and is going to be 
It's going to hurt somebody's feelings. I'll always be real slow about dealing with it. Well, not everybody that's around me wants to be slow like that. A lot of people are quick to get some to encourage somebody else to deal with things when they're not the ones that God's dealing with about the situation anyway. So there were people that were around me that were aware of the situation that were trying to get me to move and do something about it. And a couple of weeks went by and I didn't do anything about it. And I'm, I'm seeking the Lord on this. I'm, I'm talking to the Lord about it and I'm saying, Lord, this could go really bad if we don't handle this right. So I need your direction so that we do this in the right way. And a lot of times that means at the right time. And so there were some other people around me, people on staff that were getting really frustrated with me because I wasn't doing anything about it. And I knew it was something that needed to be done. I just couldn't get clear in my heart about the time to do it. Well, as far as everybody else was concerned, uh, I say that everybody else, the three or four people that knew about it, now's the time. They didn't think there was anything to wait for. They knew I could handle it or expected me to handle it in some way or another. And so they just wanted me to go do something about it. But I kept waiting, kept waiting, kept waiting. And there was just something on the inside. I just could not get clear about the time of the right timing to handle the situation. So I'm coming into the office one day and, uh, I'm aware of the the need to to do something about it. It's gone long enough now to where if I don't do something about it, it's going to get worse. So I'm talking to the Lord as I'm driving to the office, and I said, okay, Lord, I realize that I'm going to need to do something about this today. So you make a way for me to do this in the right way, the right time. I want this thing to go well. Even if he doesn't stay with us, let's leave on good terms. So I got into the office. And as was unusual, he was there before I was. And as I came into the door, he stuck his head out his door and said, uh, Hey, Pastor Mike, I need to talk to you. I said, All right, that'll be fine. Come on into my office. So he comes in and he sits down and waits for me to, you know, get situated. I'm just walking into the door. So he waited for me to get situated. He said, uh, There's something I need to talk to you about. And as fast as you snap your fingers, I knew exactly what he wanted to talk to me about by revelation of the Holy Ghost. I said, yeah, I know what it is. You're going to leave us. You're going to be going to work in a church with your family. And you want to leave as soon as possible. Well, his jaw hit the floor. He said, that's exactly right. How did you know that? I said, the Lord just spoke to me. Now, folks, I could have handled the situation any time in the previous couple of weeks. And I'm sure we could have received some type of satisfaction for the church or got what we needed or wanted or whatever. But God was working things out. I think a lot of times we move too quickly to let God work them out. Now, there's no way I could have planned to have a word of knowledge about what was going on or revelation from the Holy Ghost about the thing. But he left, and whatever the circumstances were or whatever the thoughts he had about the church or me or anything else, he knew the Holy Ghost had read his mail. And there was opportunity because of some things that had happened and some things that other people had said, there was opportunity for him to have some hard feelings or think badly about us. But he couldn't then. I wonder how many times we've run ahead of the Holy Ghost and messed up his plans. Now, I'll tell you one other story. There was a uh, certain minister very well known that I had people coming to me saying, oh, Pastor Mike, you need to have so-and-so in. You need to have him in our church. He needs to preach. Oh, he's having such miracles, such wonderful things take place in his ministry. You just need to have him in here into the church. Well, I knew by the inward witness that he was a guy that we did not want. 
I just knew it. Now, if you'd asked me, how do I know? I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I knew what I suspected, but I didn't have any, didn't have any evidence of it. And it wasn't something the Lord told me. There have been a couple of times throughout the years where the Lord has warned me about people, self-designing people and people that wanted to use this to their advantage. But that's only been two or three times in 30 years. And it wasn't something that the Lord had told me about in this case. But I just knew this is not a guy that I need to have in. Well, over the process of time, and, and there was a... Um, well, there was about a year, maybe a year and a half, where, oh, buddy, I mean, he was the hot stuff. Everybody was talking about him. Everybody was writing articles in the charismatic magazines about him. The things that were taking place in his meetings and the supernatural things that are taking place. Oh, boy, I mean, ever he was in demand. Everybody wanted him. Everybody but me, I guess. And so throughout that period of time, people made sure that I got copies of the articles and heard what they thought about what they read and all this kind of stuff. It was really, there were several people in the church, three of them particularly, that had their foot in my back. Just trying to make me do something that they thought would be good for everybody. I'm not questioning their motives. They intended the right thing. They wanted the right thing. But it just wasn't something I had in my heart to do. Well, over a process of time, it came to light that he was going overseas and having some of these great meetings, revivals, crusades, whatever you want to call them, getting a lot of results. A lot of people coming to the altars, a lot of people getting healed and so forth. But he's running up a lot of debt, getting other people to sign on their churches for the meetings and then running off and not paying the bills. Now, when it came to light, some of those people came to me and said, Oh, Pastor Mike, I'm so glad you didn't have so-and-so. Well, how do you explain things like that? I didn't have a word from the Lord. I just had an inward witness. I just knew that I knew that I knew he was not somebody for our church. As a matter of fact, the the end of this story is this. Before it was exposed what he was doing and how he was mishandling the money and so forth he was in our area one time or planning to be in our area one time and he sent me an invitation for lunch it was a nice place he wanted to go for lunch his treat and I didn't want anything to do with it I knew what he was there for I knew he was going to talk to me about a meeting or give me a chance to get acquainted with him so that I might invite him or whatever the case was and I didn't want to go I just preferred to stay away from it as far away as I could. But the Lord spoke to me and told me to go to lunch. Well, that was the most awkward lunch I've ever had with anybody. But I know I'm there because the Lord told me to go. So he talked a little bit and tried to be my buddy and there are very few people in the world that know how hard that is. But it just didn't work. I mean, he and I just did not click and fit together in any way whatsoever. Even talking about the things of God, we came at it from so polar opposite positions that it just became him telling his stories and me nodding saying, hmm. So at the end of the lunch... I got in my car and I said, Lord, I do not get this at all. Here you told me to come to lunch with this guy. I got a free meal out of it, but I didn't even enjoy it. What did I do that for? And the Lord spoke to me just as clear as a bell. He said this. He said, that was to show him that he couldn't take advantage of your church. And I learned something. I learned something that day, folks. I learned that if somebody can't take advantage of me, then they can't take advantage of the church. 
Your spirit knows things that your head doesn't know. Your spirit knows things that your head doesn't know. Let me say it again. The person that keeps his spirit locked away becomes easy prey for selfish and designing people. But the person, man, woman, boy, or girl, who gives attention to spiritual development, who listens and unlocks the keys to their spirit, climbs to the top. The Bible says the Holy Ghost will show you things to come. Most of the time, that's by the inward witness. Other times, it's by the inward voice. Amen? Amen. Well, let's all stand. I feel like Brother Hagin just standing up here telling stories. If only, huh? Let's lift our hands and thank God for the Holy Ghost. Father, thank you that we're your children. Because we are your children, we have the opportunity and the right and the responsibility to be led by the Spirit of God. Thank you, Father, for leading us by the inward witness, for making us aware that we are your children, that you are our Father, and that the Holy Ghost lives on the inside of us to be our helper. He's our strengthener. He's our comforter. He's our standby. Thank you, Father, that he brings all things to our remembrance, whatsoever Jesus said. And he shows us things to come. He guides us into all truth by the inward witness. Lord, we commit to you purpose to hear the voice of our own spirit. Before we listen to the voice of reason. We purpose. To seek after the leading of the Holy Ghost. And not what we feel or what we think. We purpose. To live a life. Where our conscience is void of offense. Toward God and toward man. We purpose, Father, to exercise ourselves to have always a good conscience because that's the leading of the Holy Ghost. That's the way we'll be able to follow after peace. That's the way we'll be able to follow your leading. In Jesus' name. If you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.